Hey there, everybody, and welcome to the Cinema Drip Podcast, the podcast where we need movies like we need our coffee. As always, I am Scott Lentz, here with my good friend and co-host, Christian Ubius, and this is a monumental day here on the Cinema Drip Podcast for one very important reason, Uh, and it's not because today is April 12th, it's not because it's the third episode of a blend of the month. Nobody's birthday. It, it is died. my dad's birthday. It, wow, Christian, it's your dad's birthday. I spoke too soon. Happy birthday Christian's, to Christian's father. But no, this is a monumental day, Christian, because we are discussing none other than Birdman or the unexpected virtue of ignorance. And as mentioned on the show before, you have some feelings about this movie, Christian. You have a, a feeling or two, in fact. I love this movie a lot, and it is no exaggeration for me to say that this is my favorite movie of all time. So, with, like, I'm not biased at all, for sure, but I understand a little bit of the onus during this episode is going to be me defending that point, and I will do it, for sure, but I, I, I mean... It, it will be a lot of coming into this and also saying this movie hit the right notes for me at the time that it came out and in all the times I've seen it since continues to be reminiscent of that. Uh, Inuritu continues to be an important director in my life, having seen much of his filmography. I, I don't know where else to take this. I don't really know where else to take this, except that one of my favorite things besides this movie is showing other people this movie. They're so confused, and then they just go with it. So you know what, Scott? Let's go with it. Let's go with it. I'm excited to go with it, Christian. So you shared that this is a personal favorite of yours. So just to set this scene, too, I'd love to explain or share for the listeners where you were when you first saw this movie. Because where I was when I saw this movie was a very important time in my growing cinephilia. In that this year for the Oscars, kind of why we're talking about it for this Best Picture Winners of the 2010s Blend of the Month. This year for the Oscars is one of the first years where I'm really, really locked into movies, locked into the Oscars. I saw all but one of the Best Picture nominees before the ceremony. I was actively seeking these movies out. And I actually saw Birdman in an incredible three-movie day at a theater near my hometown that had a lot more screens, and they they were the theater that would show some of these bigger movies, or I guess movies that were bigger critically, but not necessarily in the popular consciousness. So I got to see Birdman, whiplash and american sniper all in the same day and at the time i deeply loved all three of those movies and i haven't seen actually this is the first time that i saw birdman since that day and i don't think i've seen american sniper or whiplash since then either but all in all still a very good day at the movies and for my growing interest in the movies just an incredible day all around and birdman was the crown jewel of that day so I'm curious as to when you first ran into this movie, my friend, because that's that's where I was. I was hot uh, hot on Christmas break 
from my freshman year of college, right right in that film bro, becoming a film bro status. It was great. But where were you? I want to say that it was November or something. I was there with my friend uh, uh, who was also my prom date later on that school year. But this was my senior year. Yeah, this was my senior year of high school. And we just said we wanted to hang out. And we said we wanted to go to the movies. And so we go and neither of us had heard anything about Birdman at all. We just went to a local city theater and we're like, let's watch this movie. It looks cool. The poster looks interesting. Let's sit down. This was not a full theater. It was honestly, it it actually had a pretty decent crowd, like 30, 40% of the theater was full. And I sit down, there were, I want to say 25 minutes of commercials. I remember there being a ton of commercials and me thinking, I do love watching commercials. I just have absolutely no clue when this movie is going to start because I feel like, it feels like the runtime has already been spent. And the movie starts and I am dying of laughter throughout so much of it. I can't exactly tell you all the different parts I, I just remember there's one there are a couple critical moments when the camera shows a drummer and you um, you know what I'm talking about and I remember bursting into laughter because I thought it was genius uh, uh they're acting this is a very meta acting wise kind of a film and me smiling throughout it and I will say that the how clever and self-aware, it was was something I hadn't noticed personally in a film before that time. I leave, and if you had asked me later that day or the next day or within the next year, two years, I would not have said that Birdman was my favorite movie. It probably would remain being Star Wars. I think that up until that point, I would have said Star Wars. Now, several years go by, and every time I think about good movie-going experiences the one movie-going experience that always comes to mind is Birdman. And I haven't, like, sat down and analyzed why I love it. I haven't sat down and repositioned myself into what it is that Inuritu was going for. I remember having a good time and understanding that there were levels of the importance of art itself that Birdman was going for that hit me more than any other film had ever hit me with. When I get into my intro to film class, because I didn't switch into my film major late until late my junior year, I get into, I'm a junior amongst basically freshmen, uh, and the first question the professor asks is, as we go around the room, what is the one movie that has captivated us or that made us switch our career? I remember saying Star Wars, and then I stopped and said, but I also need to add Birdman. And I have a friend who is a producer on the movie that I wrote that you saw. And as we were talking in the beginning, before the movie had been made about it, I had mentioned that Birdman was one of my influences, not on that movie, but just as uh, kind of what I wanted to get from one of the scenes. And he texted me later, said, Birdman might be the best theater going experience I ever had and he didn't reference anything but he said the way that I felt after watching Birdman that that is what I want people to get after they watch any movie I ever make 
And I thought, kind of same. If I could ever, I don't ever want to do a Birdman-like film. At least I don't think that right now that's where my sensibilities are at. But if I ever get someone to walk out of a theater and feel the way that I did after watching Birdman, I think that I, I could maybe not necessarily retire after that, but feel a huge sense of relief. <laughs> the epic saga of Christian and his love for Birdman causing him to change majors, inspiring and informing the screenplays that he writes. My friend, I hope that one day you can write a movie that makes someone else out there feel the same way that you did after seeing Birdman. Having dreams is important, and I support you in pursuing yours. And now we get to talk about Alejandro Gonzalez in Yaritu and his dream of making Birdman happen. So naturally, this is a Best Picture winner's blend of the month we've been looking at these movies in their oscars context and although i haven't seen many of these movies since that year seeing them for the purposes of getting ready for the oscars honestly of the 2010s this has to be one of my favorite years just in terms of how well i rank these movies personally nominated for best picture that year obviously winning was birdman but also in competition, American Sniper, The Grand Budapest Hotel, my first and favorite Wes Anderson movie, The Imitation Game, Selma, The Theory of Everything, Whiplash, Damien Chazelle's rocket launch onto the scene, and another movie that I love from this year, and largely the second place finisher, even though the Oscars don't have those. In terms of the dialogue and the discussion around it, the second place finisher was Richard Linklater's Boyhood, a movie that I know we disagree on <laughs> in terms of personal enjoyment. But for me, this is just an amazing Oscars year. So what were your thoughts on the year in general? Have you gotten to see more of these movies? Obviously, Birdman is your favorite kind of no matter what. But uh, do you have more opinions on any of them? Anything else stand out? I have seen all of these except for one. Sadly, the one that I have not seen is Selma. It is on the to-do list. It is definitely on the to-do list as I look back at Best Picture nominees. I will say that it's interesting. I knew Boyhood was like the early favorite for Best Picture, if there's such a thing as an early favorite. Yeah. And I, I'm, I will put aside my personal feelings on Boyhood. It is interesting seeing Birdman pitted against Boyhood. Both are which are epics in different ways in terms of how to make showy film. One filmed over an entire 12-year saga, the other one filmed to appear as though it was one take. So it was kind of a competition of who can, which craft is best, better on display. Not just best, because a lot of these films, I think, are very strong, but better which one can get you more i will say i loved the imitation game when i first saw it it it's not a movie that i would say has grown on me i feel like it's more of a i really enjoyed it i don't feel the obligatory need to revisit it american sniper is an interesting film for me i saw it well not recently but a year and a half ago was the last time i saw it i think bradley cooper's performance was great I've been going through just a reevaluation of how I feel about war in that film, though I do think ultimately it's successful. Whiplash, unapologetic. The theory of everything is, I, I like it. I think it's a strong film. It's not for me. I, I, and the Grand Budapest Hotel, 
you know, is is not it's not for me. It's just I'm oh I have major complaints about Grand Budapest Hotel for and Boyhood. Shame for shame, Christian. I think that when the discussion around Boyhood became more of a this movie was shot over twelve years rather than what the movie itself is about. Now you can agree or disagree with the movie being strong, but I think the conversation was more, look at how great it was that this movie was shot over 12 years rather than this movie is a great movie. Grand Budapest Hotel, I think was, I think that was, was as much as I respect Wes Anderson, and I do think Wes Anderson is a genius. It, it, it was him getting lost and playing with his toys. I'm deeply offended here. <laughs> I'm getting make a trench over here we're talking about your favorite movie and you're just taking pot shots left and right at these movies that i love <laughs> goodness gracious christian i'm gonna take it out on Birdman. i'm like the, no, like the other parent at the school who's on the pta who's gonna like make it harder for your kid to start on the soccer team that's gonna be me i'm hiding grand budapest hotel behind my my left leg and hiding boyhood behind my right <laughs> i'm kind of with you on a lot of those movies though the theory of everything is fine it's good. Yay. This is a very biopic heavy year, as you can see. Um, American Sniper, I'm in the exact same spot as you. I remember really loving it and thinking Bradley Cooper was awesome at the time, but I've been reevaluating my politics and my stance on war and how we celebrate patriots and war heroes. And I think if I were to watch American Sniper again, I may have some similar opinions, but I know some things have changed for me as well that might affect how I feel about that movie. Selma is a movie that I want to rewatch because I I just want to be more familiar with Ava DuVernay. I think she's an important filmmaker working today. I loved Selma at the time, and now I've gotten to see 13th on Netflix and When They See Us, also on Netflix, which are just two incredible civil rights-based films slash miniseries in the case of When They See Us. And she is a just an important voice in Hollywood today, and... I want to see Selma again, her first major Hollywood movie. Also, just an unusual Oscar story for Selma in that it got nominated for only two Oscars, Best Picture and Best Original Song, which it's extremely rare for a movie to be nominated for Best Picture and not any other significant awards. And Selma was shut out for some important ones that it was in the running for, namely Best Director and Best uh, Actor in a Leading Role. So I'd be curious to revisit it and see if my thoughts are the same. Um, And... I'm sure we can we can hash out more thoughts on all these movies, but alas, we are talking about one of them in particular, and that being Birdman. So, Christian, I now turn to you. This has been your blend of the month. Why don't you go ahead and share some of the background, some of the key details for this movie? Okay, so Birdman or The Unexpected Virtue of Ignorance, I am going to go into a very general plot outline What's funny is that uh, for my birthday, a friend of ours, Brayden, got me a big poster that had 1,500 movies to watch before you die, and you, like, check them off, and if you like them. So but the, movies. the thing is, is that you have to find the movie. It has, like, 80 different genres and subgenres, and I found Birdman under fantasy and then under reverie. Like, personal reverie. I don't know what that means. 
it's a black comedy, I think is a much better term for it, but I couldn't find it under black comedy, about this man, Regan Thompson, played by Michael Keaton, who is seeking to stage a comeback. He had played the comic book hero Birdman in three different movie installments and had turned down a fourth in favor of a different type of career that ultimately flopped. He is here on Broadway, writing and uh, directing and starring in and producing a show, what we talk about when we talk about love, that was based on a Raymond Carver novel. And <laughs> honestly, it's not going well. Uh, one of his actors gets injured. They need to find a replacement. This replacement named Mike Shiner, played by Edward Norton, turns out to be available, except that he's like, not sucks in the sense that he's a bad actor. He's an incredible actor who's just a dick to everyone. And we follow uh, we follow Riggins' mental journey, frequently being taunted by the manifestation of his comic book alias. Birdman is there telling him he is better than this, that the people will love him, that why is he stooping to this sort of prestige when he could have been a god like before. And uh, we go up into, through previews of this Broadway show, to opening night, and then to what happens after opening night. It's not many days. I think this movie takes place over the course of four days or so. Yeah, I think it's like three previews and opening night, and then the day after, so maybe five. Things aren't going too well. It's interesting, and also movie is shot to appear as though it was in one take. So the editing just kind of knits scenes together. And doesn't stop and cut to someone else's perspective. All takes place within this Broadway theater. Except for some key scenes that are outside of this theater. And features other major players. Such as Zach Galifianakis um, as Riggins lawyer. We have Andrea Riseborough as Laura. Who is also in an, an actor. We have Amy Ryan as his ex-wife. We have Emma Stone here as his daughter. Naomi Watts as another person also... In the cast, Lindsay Duncan as this woman who is a critic who are they are trying to impress. It's a very ensemble-heavy movie, but still keying in on Michael Keaton's Regan Thompson. Definitively a leading role at the center of this ensemble, but still there's plenty of diversions to follow along with all of these different key figures and some of whom I wish we had even more time with, which I'm sure we can get into as we get into more of our thoughts on the movie. So we did mention this, but directed by Alejandro Gonzalez in as he's, I don't know if I would say he's reaching a pinnacle of his importance in Hollywood. He'd been around making films for a while, but obviously this wins him an Oscar and wins him a Best Picture Oscar. And then he has The Revenant come out shortly thereafter, continuing his relevance in Hollywood. It's wins him another Oscar. Indeed. A, a truly impressive moment for him. He co-wrote it uh, with three other writers, Nicholas Jacobone, Alexander Dinalaris Jr., and Armando Beau. And some of the other most important collaborators here, I would say, number one, cinematography, Emmanuel Lubezki, who's in Chivo! the middle. Chivo! In the middle of one of the most legendary hot streaks in Oscars history. He's one of the greatest living cinematographers, and uh, he's right in the middle of winning three Academy Awards in a row, something that I don't think has been done for anybody in, in a particular category, let alone cinematography. So, shout out to Chivo. And 
people who probably didn't need to be in the cast. Edited. <laughs> Edited by Douglas Christ and Stephen Mirioni. Music by Antonio Sanchez. Uh, well, the Okay, the, it has to be difficult to edit this together. Because they have to do incredibly long takes and then parcel them through and make no one notice the editing. Right, but... <laughs> I think I saw I'm I'm uh, stepping on <laughs> the fun fact section of this episode, but I saw somewhere that there's about 16 visible cuts in the movie, and obviously there are a few more stitched in <laughs> to give the appearance of it all happening in one day. But <laughs> the much of this movie is not made in the editing, and that's I think an aspect of filmmaking that. Us, us normal folks don't always know how to discuss in in detail because it's such a significant part of actually making the movie and yet one that often is at its best when it's invisible. So it is sometimes hard to discuss. But for those two, I'm sure they were given lots of very long sections of film. I guess this was digital. So long files that they then basically strung together and i know there's more of an art to it no disrespect to <laughs> to them but this is certainly not a film that is known for its editing but rather the, the lack thereof should we be, okay let's just move on to fun facts then since let's you already mentioned one let's do it speaking of fun facts I'll, I'll keep going here this is the first movie since ordinary people to win best picture without being even nominated for best editing for a long time, Best Film Editing was actually a little bit of a, a precursor to winning Best Picture. A lot of films that won for their editing would go on to win, much like Best Director often leads to a Best Picture win. So this is the first film in decades at that time. I think it, 30 plus years to not only win Best Picture without winning Best Editing, but to not even be nominated for its editing. So I'm going to take a go on through that editing thing. Because all the shots were done in long takes and the crew and all of the actors had to work so hard to know all their lines and all their blocking, for that reason, editing only took two weeks. And the film itself only filmed in two months. And they shot the film from, uh, what's the best way to say it? They shot the film in sequence. So from start to end. Whereas most films are no longer shot that way in order to account for what is actually best and most efficient to use. No, they shot it beginning of the story to end of the story. So that's kind of incredible. I saw it just, this is a, a postscript to that fun fact, but in all the interviews and the press after it, the actors would often talk about how easy it was to make a mistake that would then ruin this incredibly long take and Emma Stone mentioned at one point that she rounded a corner too early before two other actors finished up a conversation and they had to start completely over <laughs> because her character entered the scene too soon. There's a lot of drama amongst the cast members of the fictional play and one of my favorite things that I happened upon <laughs> while I was just doing a little bit of research about the movie was that every major lead and supporting character in the film kisses another lead and supporting character always on the lips. So here you go. Here's the running list of smooches in Birdman. Laura kisses Riggin before slapping him for not being excited about her possible pregnancy. Sam kisses Mike after he initially turns her down. Jake kisses Leslie after she announces that Mike will be joining the play. Laura kisses Leslie when Leslie is in tears out of the embarrassment that she's feeling from one of the previews. Mike also kisses Leslie, so shout out to Leslie getting the most kisses. While performing in front of a live audience, obviously they're having this sex scene on stage. 
And Sylvia kisses Riggin when he admits to um, some drama that happened during their marriage. She ends that conversation with a kiss. So everybody gets kisses in Birdman. Yay for everybody. Be happy. <laughs> of course, many of those are not actually romantic or happy moments. They are sometimes confusing, challenging, weird, interpersonal dynamics. Dark, yes. <laughs> but lots of smooches nonetheless. All right the this there's a key scene here where one of our actors has to run outside a theater in his underwear they had to shoot that scene after midnight because they were in times square and they needed to limit the amount of real bystanders however the crowd was not completely gone and most of the people featured would be hired extras that is one of the more one of the more incredible and anxiety-inducing sequences in this movie. So I wondered how they did it. Uh, my last one for you, Christian. Emma Stone was credited for the most mistakes in having to redo scenes from the beginning. Do you know who was credited with the fewest mistakes? Was it Edward Norton? It was not. It was Zach Galifianakis. Good which, for him. Good for him. I think a little unfair because he also is simply in the fewest amount of scenes compared to the other performers but he also moved through his mistakes gracefully and it said that he would often mess up anyway but then he would just keep rolling he would play it off as sort of his character's anxious energy and apparently some of the mistakes he made ended up in the finished takes he just played them off so naturally that obviously once you're shooting these incredibly long scenes for the ninth or tenth time and you don't want to start all over again then hey you just roll with the punches and so zach galifianakis caused them to restart shooting the fewest amount of times good for you zach good for you i my last one i will say this is my last one the reason why the the reason why this was able to get made was because inuritu had actually planned to film the revenant before birdman but leonardo dicaprio had signed on to already play the lead in wolf of wall street so he wasn't available and since he wasn't available inuritu decided to go ahead with birdman first because he really wanted DiCaprio for The Revenant. There you go. And obviously, it worked out well for all involved. But I am curious how things would have been different had Birdman and The Revenant switched places. I know they came out pretty close to one another, because The Revenant is nominated for all of its Oscars the following year, correct? Yes. Yes, it is. Yeah. So, again, just this huge moment for Inyari 2. I do wonder if anything at all would have changed were those movies to switch places. Who knows? And with that, are we, is this happening? Are we finally going to go into our discussion of Birdman? I think it's time, Christian. We've, we've gotten all the foreplay out of the way. It's time. All right. Then, Scott, let us begin with your question to open this up. Birdman, or the unexpected virtue of ignorance, wins. It wins the Oscar for Best Picture. It got several awards before then that kind of signaled it could win. It was at least a front runner to win, such as the Producers Guild and the Screen Actors Guild for Best Ensemble. But more than that, it is it is divisive, and yet also a source of inspiration for many individuals in terms of what a long take can be, in terms of what writing can be, and in terms of what acting can look like in this scenario. Some decry this film, 
to be an Inuritu full of himself. Others believe that it is a turn for Inuritu because everything he had directed and written before this was so dark and very um, just sad. Given this success, and even given my affection for it, this is what I want you to answer. What can someone learn from Birdman, or how can they be inspired? It's entered the canon. It will forever be highlighted yellow on the Wikipedia charts of Best Picture winners. So what does that mean for someone who looks at this? What can they take as a source of inspiration moving forward? That is a very, very large question, one which I don't feel very qualified to speak on, <laughs> but I'll try my hand. In terms of learning from Birdman, I feel like there are some... Actually, let me backtrack here. One of the things that Birdman does best, and that I think has actually aged well, is the way that it engages with Hollywood, and especially superhero movie culture. At this time, obviously, the MCU is happening, there are Avengers movies, there are many heroes being introduced, DC is trying its hand at the Cinematic Universe game, superheroes are growing in popularity, and they're not going to stop at all, obviously. And I feel like Birdman is a really fascinating document for engaging with this aspect of Hollywood. And it's a, one of the things that it does well is engages not only with, or not only gives actors nice material that they can really chew into and have a blast with, but also to reflect on their own personas. Edward Norton and Michael Keaton especially, essentially playing versions of themselves. Edward Norton more closely to his real self, Michael Keaton playing a character who's sort of inspired by what could have gone wrong with Michael Keaton. And I think it's a, it's a, it's a fun movie in the ways that it plays with those aspects, those facets, the ways that these actors can engage with their personas and we can comment on superhero culture at large. I am sure there is so much to learn from this movie in terms of the cinematography and using this restrictive space in really, really invigorating ways terms of the music and focusing on percussion heavy or even exclusively percussion in terms of the scoring to build this sense of anxiety or to underscore a scene in in an interesting way and ways of playing with even magical realism which is not something that gets introduced by white American filmmakers very often it is a style of fiction that is utilized in in different spaces and from what i know which is very little i know that often latinx authors will incorporate magical realism into their works it's a it's a movement more known from south america and so in terms of all of those different things there's so many different aspects and things to draw from and learn from about birdman but i think the biggest one is you can see a fascinating way of engaging with Hollywood and superhero culture and even acting in general. What is a good actor? Who is an actor? Who is a good actor? So that's broad. <laughs> I, I know. And I'm it's curious. It, sure. <laughs> and I'm curious what you think of my answer, but also if there's any, if there's something in particular you were getting at hoping that I would touch on. I was interested in if you would go into the cinematography Though also, yeah, the superhero aspect of this film, it it immediately dated itself. It mentioned the Avengers, it mentioned Robert Downey Jr., and it mentioned Jeremy Renner. 
you know, it got, it, it knows what time period it's in and it will always know what time period it's in. And sometimes it's not the best thing. As soon as you introduce technology into a script, as a professor once told me, you have dated your script forever. That's not saying don't do it. That's just saying understand what happens if this is going to happen. But now I think Birdman has aged very well, specifically in the way you've said it, because it's asking us what is art, which is the broadest question you can possibly have. And a fight that was occurring in Hollywood at that time, which is a fight that's occurring in Hollywood still, do we go for the big blockbuster event as high art? Is Broadway theater high art? And if you move from one to the other, are you becoming more prestigious or are you selling out? I think that those are all questions that have honestly been, they've existed for hundreds and hundreds of years originally plays weren't considered high art or many times the production of these plays weren't they were places honestly for at times brothels and uh, hookers to be the ones performing so it's good i think that it dating itself is good because it's so self-aware it knows who its audience is it knows what time period it's speaking to and it wants you to sit back and mull these questions over alongside it instead of answering them. The aging and dating of Birdman is interesting because I had forgotten how much <laughs> this, how how 2014 this movie felt, <laughs> or 2013. I, I I have to double. I guess this movie came out in 2014. Oscars were in 2015. Regardless, there is discussion about should Riggin make a Twitter basically his his daughter who we've mentioned played by emma stone is serving as his assistant and she starts to make him social media pages and he's like bah humbug i don't need social media which of course no famous person now rejects social media they know they have to be on it to stay relevant and there are these moments of <laughs> when they're asking about possible actors to fill in for this this injured performer we see at the beginning of the movie. You know, they mentioned Woody Harrelson. They say, nah, he's doing another Hunger Games. We can't get him. <laughs> it It is funny to see the ways that this movie dates itself. I think the superhero commentary and like you're talking about the high art versus low art blockbuster cinema versus Broadway stage. I think those conversations have aged differently, some aspects of it, but all in all has aged fairly well. And I think that's one of the better aspects of Birdman, as I already mentioned. I am going to now push into this being a 2014 film as we move it further on in this discussion. You did tell me that you absolutely love this the first time you saw it. Do you feel the same? Did it decrease in your love for it? And if so, what is it that you were noticing this time that wasn't there before or something that like cemented itself or unraveled? Now, Christian, this is a complicated question <laughs> because we once had an argument about this movie, despite the fact that I considered it a five out of five star movie. <laughs> so I know that it is it's not just a movie that you hold as a favorite. I know you're being very diplomatic on this podcast right now because of how much you love this movie. So I was trying to pay close attention to how I was feeling and what I was gathering from the movie when I, as I was rewatching it for the first time since I originally saw it, because I wanted to make sure that no matter what, whether I came out the exact same, the exact same 
or loving it more or loving it less. I wanted to make sure that I could accurately defend where I was coming from. And I also wanted to do it without hurting your feelings. <laughs> As I, I don't want this to become my Raiders of the Lost Ark or the Matrix. I think I still have a great deal of affection for Birdman. And it was weird watching it because I think there are aspects of it that, like we're talking about it aging, that just simply weren't as strong for me without the initial wow factor of that first viewing, of sitting in that theater, watching it, and just being completely blown away by what I was seeing. I think coming back to it, despite knowing that I loved it and then being excited to finally rewatch it, there were little pieces and parts here and there that added up to just small dings against it. So it's it's still a movie that I really, really enjoy. It's still one of my favorite Best Picture winners from this decade. Like I said, it's, it's a complicated Best Picture year for me because I loved so many of those movies so much. But I think it has gone down slightly in my estimation. And I would be curious to hear your take on some of the... Th- some of the things that stood out to me as small problems that limited it from the perfection that I originally saw back in 2014. Are you going to kill me or what's going to happen here? Are we going to cancel cinema drip? Are you angry with me, Christian? Do we need to pause the recording and hash this out? <laughs> I'm not angry with you. <laughs> I, I, I pick and choose my battles. <laughs> now, during the end of the year awards it's gonna be really bad oh my gosh (laughs) during the end of year awards let's just say it's gonna be really really bad because all films are competing against my favorite film so you need to pick and choose your battles at that time as well no but i respect everyone who has a different opinion on birdman than me for me it's much more of a and 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 I know you've heard me say this before. I normally decry films that people consider to be the best of all time without me considering to be the best of all time. And and here's why. I think that what should be considered the the bar for that. If I am moved by it, I love Citizen Kane for Orson Welles' performance. I actually think that Citizen Kane is in part most successful because of his towering entity there, embodying that script. Citizen Kane did not move me, though, as much as something else like The Graduate has moved me. Now, I'm more here not to say don't disrespect Birdman, but here to say I think that Birdman should be considered something of valor and of note valor is an interesting word (laughs) birdman we do dub thee a film of valor kneel before thy king just start talking i we were having a good moment (laughs) we were having a nice time oh we sure were christian but i'm here to take all this nervous energy and undermine it with comedy man i think being a best picture winner is already something of note And talking about the Oscars is always fun because there are people, whether they're critics or whether they're normal Joes like you and me or what have you, who will be like, F the Oscars, they don't matter, art is art, and money has ruined it permanently. The only films I watch are black and white 16 millimeter dramas from Hungary. And to those people, 
I say, good on you. You're smarter than me. But also... Oh, I, I say some other words that we can't say on these podcasts. <laughs> the Oscars are sort of important and an incredibly flawed, but important history of sorts for American film. And Birdman is... Whether you hate this movie or not, because there are some people who really hate this movie, it is in the annals of history now as a Best Picture winner. And I think I would have gone elsewhere were I voting for the Academy back in 2014, even in 2014, when I saw this movie and was bowled over by it for the first time. I would have voted for Boyhood, which will piss you off to no end, I'm sure. Would you have voted for Boyhood over Grand Budapest? I would have, yes. That's interesting. Okay. In ter- we, and maybe we can hash this out some other time. But in terms of personal preference, GBH, Grand Budapest, is, is my favorite of those three movies. Um, but in terms of trying to suss out best picture of the year, Boyhood t- took it for different reasons. But all that to say, I think that the Birdman conversation now is almost dominated by the detractors. People who hated it at the time and have always taken it down and now consider it one of the worst best picture winners, at least from the past 10 years or so. But looking back just at Letterboxd and seeing what people who I follow, said about Birdman, there's tons of four, four and a half, five-star reviews, including yours and mine, and five stars. I made Doc mine down and dock it down to a four and a half stars out of five, which is still incredible. How dare you? Movie. I, yeah, how dare me indeed. I do think Birdman is a movie of note. I think it's a great movie. I think that it captures a couple different things, namely Inyari 2 on this meteoric rise to winning you know, his, his huge run with Birdman and The Revenant. The, the resurgence of Michael Keaton, which, goodness gracious, can we please start talking about Michael Keaton, who, whom I love, <laughs> and who gets to come back from all these years roiling in mediocre movies like the RoboCop remake to being nominated for an Oscar for Birdman and making me angry because he didn't win. And, again, a, a juicy role for Emma Stone and getting her first Oscar nomination. A juicy role for Edward Norton, and although his career is... In, a small fallow period right now you know again one of this, these great moments for him capturing Lubezki in the middle of this crazy run <laughs> he goes on it, it's just such a good and enjoyable movie and I think there's a lot of substance to it as well which a lot of people criticize it for being all style no substance and I think that it left me thinking about some important questions and some of these aspects of like high art low art like you've talked about and what does it mean to be a good actor versus a versus a presence versus a celebrity. There's this great quote from the critic towards Riggin about that. Birdman is great. <laughs> and I'm still very pro Birdman, even if I think it's, it's, it's aged very well, but not flawlessly in my eyes. So what, what are those dings then? What are those things that have maybe prevented it from aging the way that you, um, uh... To, to not why would you choose boyhood over this because that doesn't necessarily mean a movie is bad or has whatever it just means that you like a different movie more or believe it has more strengths but what has fallen for this one uh because we've talking about the substance and the meta self-aware nature and the interesting kind of cross view of art with all different aspects of art so in terms of things that I, just the, the small things that I didn't like about Birdman this time around, number one, maybe the most, the most important aspect that I want your thoughts on, but basically, I think when the movie strays too far from Riggin for too long, I was less interested, and 
the scenes aren't always unimportant. I think they're often adding to the characters and adding to the personal drama unfolding behind the scenes. And of course, the drama behind the scenes coming from the other people is what's building into Riggins' mental health struggle. But some of the scenes with Emma Stone and Edward Norton dragged a little bit for me. And I wanted to get back to Michael Keaton, even though I really love Emma Stone and I really like Edward Norton. And there's another scene that uh, I, I actually alluded to it in one of my fun facts, but that didn't really sit well with me at the time. And now it doesn't either where Leslie, um, so Naomi, Naomi Watts played by Leslie has this terrible moment on stage where Edward Leslie Norton's, played by Naomi Watts. Yes. Yeah. That's what I said. Right. Did I not no, say that? You said Naomi Watts played by Leslie. Of course. Life is art Christian. Um, she has this terrible moment on stage where Mike Edward Norton's character tries to get her to, to have real sex during their sex scene and they're romantically involved, but obviously he tries to rape her. Yes. On stage. He does. It's completely inappropriate. And she's just shocked and appalled by the whole thing and runs to her dressing room as soon as the performance is over and she takes her bow and Laura, Andrea Risenborough's character, then the other, um, actress in the play comes to join her and they're having this moment of sort of connection and bonding and and it's punctuated by laura who has made comments about leslie's attractiveness in the past during the movie plants this kiss on leslie and it's not like a cheer up you know we're all in the theater it it's it's like a romantic moment and it's it it seems and feels to me honestly voyeuristic in an uncomfortable way in the same ways that a lot of movies would use women kissing women to basically just to sell sell trailers or to uh, f- to get people to ooh and ah at the sexuality. And it's not very indulgent. There's not a, a completely unnecessary gratuitous sex scene between the two of them. Nobody gets naked, thankfully. But it's just a moment that feels unnecessary to have them have this moment of almost starting to make out of course punctuated by Norton then coming into the dressing room and trying to address what happened on stage but I I read a review of Birdman from a uh, critic named Melissa Taminga who uh, her take on that scene is that again it's it's voyeuristic and her main problem with the movie which she didn't like in general is that it feels very male-dominated and male-gazy and male-glorifying in a way that some of the female characters often fail to have their own agency and they just serve the male characters. And I don't fully agree with that take, but I, I really liked her review and her take on that scene in particular as one where it sort of just serves the male gaze of imagining these two beautiful actresses sharing a romantic moment and a moment of emotional weakness after one of them was almost sexually assaulted on stage. It's moments. It's a moment like that, that that feels unnecessary and honestly distracts and detracts from this movie by attaching a lurid moment to what is otherwise a really emotionally honest moment of Leslie reeling from this moment. She's so excited to be making her Broadway debut, but is assailed by all these terrible things happening with, with Shiner. So I know it was a little long-winded there, but that is an aspect of the straying from Reagan and these small unnecessary moments, uh, especially in the realm of sexuality, that didn't sit too well with me this time around. And there's, there's another scene that's a different point that I want to talk about in terms of something that didn't age as well. But I do want to know what your, your take or your thoughts are on, on what I've said so far. Okay. And I think that is a valid concern. Do I disagree with it? I would say yes for a couple of different reasons. 
uh, when I when I talk to someone because what for my birthday what my, um, my my roommate bought me the film and the, me and some friends we were able to watch it and it was great because I do love showing people this movie. Afterwards, I asked him what his thoughts had been on this film. And he said that he noticed something that he hadn't noticed before, how sad and mistreated the female characters were. And I was thinking on that, and I remember what I told him, which was this entire thing and this entire presence with Riggin is on relevance. And it's on what it means to still stay and what it means to have prestige. And basically... A lot of it is also, where is your self-worth coming from? Now, we cut from there to this scene between Leslie and Laura. How can you have a film about relevance without showing that your female counterparts are not at the base level for where you're at? Riggin is is at a base level. He's actually above that base level because he does have prestige from those who remember him and wants to up that even more. And yet we are shown these two women who, as Leslie says, as Naomi Watts says, all her life she's always wanted to be on Broadway. She's always wanted to act it on Broadway. And yet she just almost got raped while being, while acting on this Broadway stage. Her significance and self-worth is not at the same level as that of Riggin. And that juxtaposition, I think, is showing us the discrepancies that are present, not just in art, but in human connection and in human value. And so I didn't take that scene to be a dehumanization. I took that more to be a hammering of this point that some of the things we're looking for are stupid. Even though they're human, they're stupid. Not, not Leslie, but Riggin. And the voyeuristic aspect to it that you spoke of itself, I do think is a callback to that male gaze, male view of women who are either lesbians or kissing each other without anything being mentioned about their sexuality. Whereas he can look at it from a higher point of art that they are not subject to. And it's more of a, we've spent this entire time talking about how Mike Shiner's an asshole. And yet this is an asshole who has and can give worth when these women shouldn't need to wait for him to give them worth. I think it's, very sad exchange that presents a very needed view of reality within entertainment. The thing that stands out the most to me from from what you shared is the idea of, I guess, the, the male filmmakers, because this is a movie dominated by male filmmakers, from directing to writing to producing to cinematography and on down, trying to undermine some of these male persona in in acting in entertainment in filmmaking and what have you and the self-absorption on display is certainly one of the themes something they're trying to unpack Riggin obviously is fanatically 
dedicated to this play succeeding because he's put so much of himself into it, not only starring in it, but directing and adapting the story for the stage, really needing this to work for his career comeback to succeed. And I think that Inyari 2 really does try to dig in to that self-absorption while also building empathy for Riggin because obviously we start we still root for him and I think that's that's some that's good food for thought in terms of thinking of the way the female characters are are treated as as the commentary I guess not not looking to necessarily all that they are given to do asking what is not there instead of what is there and I think the general take that that the female characters are problematically written and portrayed is is fair and it's not something i had considered as a a dumb 18 year old or 19 year old or however i was however old i was when i was seeing this movie movie for the first time and it's only something that i was even made aware of as i was reading this this review that i mentioned again melissa tamiga there and I, i i guess it when you consider all of the female characters there is more for them to do than just be objects of desire. They do have some agency, but and there's this, of course, also is... many of them. Though we have Amy Ryan as his wife, we have Leslie and Laura, and we do have Emma Stone. I would say that the most problematic nature to their writing, because they are portrayed as full-on emotionally complex women. I'm not mad at, uh, I, again, I am open to that discussion, trying to give the most objective viewpoint I possibly can as a man. I do think they are fleshed out. I may be blind to some things. I think that from what I see, they are fleshed out. They have desires and wants and uh, things that they regret doing and hopefulness for the future and we see so much of that and how they're presented not a single one of them is one-dimensional not at all but they are all dominated by these men in the sense that their lives revolve around what these men want and desire i not that this is okay and not that i'm okay with it but i think that because that's part of the point of the movie it makes sense to me. There, I think that it would be a worse film and much more deserving of this criticism if these were flat, uninteresting, one-dimensional side characters. Even the stage manager, whose name I don't know, but she's great. Like when Riggin yells, get him off stage, she looks at him. How am I supposed to do that? <laughs> I think that's such a key line. They're funny, and they, despite the fact that they're funny, and despite the fact that they know what they're doing, and that we can see their complexity, they're still dominated by these men. I think that's part of the thing that Inuritu is going for. I think Amy Ryan, in particular, is a character who both serves and (laughs) undermines your argument. Undermines because... You could easily point out the fact that she only has a couple scenes where she goes backstage to essentially comfort and console Regan, who we are told has treated her miserably. He cheated on her at an anniversary party and was violent with her. They mentioned that he threw a knife at her at one point and that those incidents are things that led to their inevitable divorce. And yet she's here comforting and consoling this poor, poor man. 
But I think also in terms of supporting, like you're saying, you, you feel that she is a full, fully fleshed out three-dimensional character. And in some respects, I think what's important about her character is that she has obviously grown and forgiven Riggin and moved on. And she is more concerned for their daughter, Sam, who we're also told Sam has just gotten out of rehab. That's part of why she's working with her dad so they can spend more time together. She can have a steady job, et cetera, et cetera. And she's not there to get back together with Riggin, which I think is a key point. She is there to comfort him, but she's also like, I've got my own husband. I've got my own life. Our tie is our daughter. And though I still care about you because we were married, our tie is our daughter, not me needing to be here. So that relationship and that character in particular, I think lends itself to something very observable about Birdman in that (laughs) Birdman is a very either or kind of movie in that you either love it or you don't. You either find it self-aware or you find it self-satisfied. You either find it compelling or you find it empty. You either see only style or you see the substance. And this is a sort of a feast or famine movie. I mentioned the Letterboxd reviews in that, of course, it was critically acclaimed the year it came out, but the takedowns and diff- and angry reviews were there. And now it has this reputation of being a somewhat undeserving Best Picture winner, a movie about Hollywood being self-congratulatory. It's a movie about actors. It's a movie about movies. And that's why it won over some more deserving films. Can, can, can and I all that to say, make all an that argument say, though. Okay. Sure. I'll just, let me just wrap this point here. All that to say, I think for you and me, we land on the, <laughs> on the positive side of Birdman and that we sort of see the fleshed out characters where there's maybe, you know, Amy Ryan, her character obviously doesn't have more than a couple scenes. We see the substance and, and underneath the style and we're compelled by the style. And there are just some people who that won't happen for them. And I think that's an important aspect to, to note about Birdman while being able to talk about our respective love for it. Because, of course, I have these issues. I would like to talk about these things with the movie, but I'm still a big fan. I, I will say it is a takedown inadvertently. I, think, I do think it's there to serve a purpose of critics and criticism. And I have respect for those who dedicate their lives to film criticism. Scott, you obviously admire many of them i admire some of them i think that some of these critics are butthurt about this film which is trying to cast a different light on them than maybe they want and it's weird for me to give that sort of an argument But the reason for it is that Malcolm and Marie, a film that came out this year, had a similar takedown and aggression against a certain critic who they alluded to, who is apparently a real individual. And I think that there's incredible craft on display in Malcolm and Marie. And I think that there's a bunch of questions about representation that are being asked. Um, And I think that the performances of Zendaya and John David Washington are phenomenal. And yet it is being panned by so many critics that I think there is a correlation here of are you, is your identity being represented well or not well, but positively in this and many are happy about it. I, now that is food for thought. 
I have listened to many critics discuss Birdman, and the ones who go for it seem to remove their critic hat when they go for it. But the ones who don't almost at, at times, and I, I have one or two examples that we can discuss after the pod, take it almost as a personal affront and have critiqued it the very same way in that scene that we see Riggin discussing with Tabitha. How he's like, all you're doing is writing labels. There's nothing about form. There's nothing about structure. And the number of reviews of Birdman that I've read where it calls it a self-aggrandizing portrait of a director full of himself who can't make anything more and who has made a string of... I'm like, you haven't told me what is self-aggrandizing. You have just told me it is self-aggrandizing. So I will... <laughs> I do believe that there is, anytime you mention a critic in a film, there's a skewing of how it is you're able to take it. So I'm glad that you brought this up because this is the other major facet of Birdman that has aged poorly for me. And I don't know how much I've gone to bat in term, for like film criticism on the show, behind the scenes certainly, especially I know we've talked about it with some of our guests when we're just like uh, chatting with them before or after recording. I am obviously very pro-film critic. I'm a little bit guilty sometimes of being too reliant on other writers and critics for my opinions, which is something I'm actively trying to avoid doing. But I think in general, film critics get a bad rap because people who like more popular movies that aren't necessarily known for their critical acclaim get butthurt, to use your word, because they're like, why didn't the critics like this movie? Or why did they like this movie? It was bad. And we have these all we have these wild fan bases rallying around these major franchises, especially Star Wars being the biggest and most notable fan base to go hog wild against critics <laughs> because they liked The Last Jedi and disliked Rise of Skywalker. Um, I love Last Jedi. It's really good. I I think that the portrayal of the critic in Birdman is very poor. I think it is a good performance from Lindsay Duncan, but she's so poorly written as this snarling villain, essentially. And I think the criticism that you mentioned of poor poor critics just labeling things, not d defending or discussing form, content, what have you, th there is poor criticism. And, and like any art form, that deserves to be critiqued on its own. But to have one critic <laughs> in this movie as the person to be appeased so that your play can succeed. And apparently she has the power to trash a play, despite the fact that it's 2014 and not like the sixties. Uh, she has the power to ruin a play's financial success. She is portrayed as just evil and wicked. And she hates that Riggin, the movie star is trying to mount a play and she's going to, to trash it. So he doesn't even need to bother impressing her. And that portrayal of a critic is so negative and so unfair. And I haven't seen Malcolm and Marie, so I can't compare it. But what I've heard in, about that movie and what I would say about Birdman and its relationship to critics is that there is always going to be interplay between those critiquing and those being critiqued. It's not fair if those being critiqued aren't allowed to respond to the criticism. The problem just comes into play when you consider power dynamics, where obviously you have famous people and celebrities with massive followings and people who will defend them to their death lashing out against critics 
often who have offered fair critiques and then that riles up a fan base and gets mad at them. So a, a reductive portrayal of a critic in Birdman, I think, is fair to be upset about but, because but I was upset But the fact that she's about. a critic is the least important aspect of her. The, the movie is not here saying critics are bad. The movie is here saying what is should and can be considered art. And it is done through this woman who uh, is quite nasty and snarling and has very reductive views on these individuals. And uh, I loves one because he's a theater actor, hates the other because he's a blockbuster actor. However, that she is not the point. She is there to try and illustrate that if you carry baggage, that view of art, because of the baggage that you carry, can be skewed. And so she ultimately ends up giving a positive review because they cross her threshold. For <laughs> because plot twist. <laughs> because it's a plot twist. <laughs> Well, not because plot twist, but because of what happens (laughs) that she then praises, I mean. And yet, it's... uh, uh, How is the best way to say it? The fact that she's a critic is important. It's the fact that she was there to ultimately kind of present the laws and gods and goddesses of what should deserve to hit the annals of history. So I, I I am wary of people who decry d- her and how she's portrayed and her as saying, can I, I did read one review that said, can someone please tell Inuritu that critics are not there to ruin your art? For the most part, sure, it's not, it, it's not that though. It's this problem that someone brought up about boyhood. If you have a 100% approval rating on Metacritic, where does that leave for someone who believes that boyhood could have been stronger or better and actually didn't uh, do the most with its 12-year rendition? I mean, what does that mean? <laughs> like, let me cut in. Like, I, I mean, uh, Metacritic and, and the lesser Rotten Tomatoes, let me take my pot shots, are just aggregating and the challenge of criticism obviously is that you don't always want to attach a score and and that great film criticism is often just writing about the movies and there's brilliant writing about absolute trash and there's lame writing about brilliance which is any and all of my letterbox reviews and and so just focusing on the star ratings or the the percentage score is a challenge and I'm just I'm just very wary of all of like an anti-critical sentiment because I think that critics actually do an important job, but it's misunderstood in the name of star ratings. And often by me too, where I look at the people that I follow and I'm like, dang, he only gave that movie three stars. I thought it was great. And the reason I was so frustrated with the portrayal in Birdman in particular is that she is presented as one dimensional. She's the snooty film critic who sits alone drinking at the bar scribbling away at her notes she's going to trash this play no matter what because she hates Rick and thompson's guts and of course any real critic who confessed to something like that would be fired because they're not engaging with whatever it is they're allowed to bring their biases into it but you can't say that to someone i'm going to trash your play no matter what and if she had been given the slightest amount of nuance or even fairness towards towards Riggin, 
towards Mike Shiner. And she and Mike have a great scene because, of course, she says, be careful, Mike. You know, I'll, I'll be there watching for your, you know, for your failure or whatever. And he's like, well, I'll never fail. I'll never have a bad performance. It, you know, it's moments like that of interplay that I think more accurately captures the divide between art, artist and critiquer of said art. And I think that Birdman, even if it's not caustic or it's not on the offensive against like art criticism, I think the reductive and negative portrayal of the critic actually works against it. Because it took me out of the movie as I was like, well, what what's this lady's deal? Even though, again, I think Lindsay Duncan gives a good performance with what she what she has to work with. And I don't think it's like all bad across the board. I like that scene with her and Mike. Uh, but all that said, I mean, it's not just about star ratings and percentage scores and you're allowed to dislike boyhood, even if, if movie critics didn't dislike boyhood, because in that 100% score on Rotten Tomatoes, there's hundred percent, five stars, and there's, there's four stars. There's 3.5 out of five stars. There's 75%. And there, there is more nuance there than is allowed by just the simple aggregation of reviews. Uh, Scott. We're running so long on We time. really are. We're just rambling about film criticism when it comes to Birdman. <laughs> so we do need to get to awards. Let's just talk about a scene that we liked and just mention it. Don't explain why. I like the scene where he's outside and Birdman appears behind him as he's walking. Great scene. And all of a sudden, the comic book Bird and the army show up because he's trying to rebel in his glory days and think about what it could have been. I think that that is such great visual effects, such beauty on display, such a psychological turmoil, and I was thriving in it. You go, Scott. Michael Keaton is an absolute American treasure. May he be beloved forever. He should have won the Oscar for this movie. Screw you, Eddie Redmayne. (laughs) But the two that come to mind for me that we didn't get to talk about that I really love are the first scene where Mike arrives and they start running lines. Mike, of course, already knowing the script because he's been practicing with Leslie and helping her get off book and all that. And they just have this great scene about acting and, and editing down a script, paring it down from what's there on the page, finding something better, hashing it out together. And Mike is a total jerk off, <laughs> like you said, but he has his he has his his pros and his pluses, and that it come out in that scene. He obviously loves the art of acting. And he brings out the best in, in Riggin as well. And I think that's a really compelling scene. Also a huge fan of the scene where Riggin is destroying his uh, dressing room, incorporating a lot of the magical realism elements that we've mentioned briefly, where he's basically using the force to throw things around. He's engaging with the Birdman voice in his head. And just a, a brilliantly performed scene from Keaton in a brilliant performed, brilliantly performed movie. And one that also, again, captures the cinematography and these, these slight visual effects and the, the technical wizardry that's on display that makes Birdman so compelling is in that is captured in that scene as well as another one that I love. With that, we have reviewed Birdman. That was not nearly as bad as I thought it could be, Christian, when I mentioned that I, it had slightly dropped in my estimations. And I appreciate you for engaging with my with my critiques more graciously than I have in the past <laughs> the yours. <laughs> As always, I am the villain of Cinema Drip, even when I think that you are. All right. But, you know, yes. With that, let's... Ooh, man. Um, Let's go on to our awards. We're doing five to mimic the Oscars. Actor, actress, screenplay, director, and picture. 
As always, yes, we do love to end these blends, giving away some awards, reflecting on our favorites. And I like the theme, Christian, with the Best Picture winners, Blend of the Month, looking at then some of the general Oscar categories. I'm excited to hear your picks as we chose some absolute bangers of movies. It was a great month for Cinema Drip, in my opinion. Let's start with Best Actress. Best Actress, and we're not distinguishing between lead and supporting. It's kind of just picking your favorite here. For me, it's Lupita Nyong'o from 12 Years a Slave. As I mentioned on that podcast, the the vulnerability and the rawness in her performance is astonishing, especially for a first-time film performance, rightly winning her an Oscar for that movie. Again, in her debut, just simply incredible. Uh, and, and Patsy is one of those characters that really does stick with you after the credits have rolled for 12 Years a Slave. So Lupita Nyong'o wins my award for Best Actress. She also wins mine. I think that there is such an, a, a vulnerability to her and such an honesty that she conveys, not just through her words, but through her expressions. And every time she falls, I feel it. And every time she has a momentary lapse and a break i am ecstatic and yet wanting more for her i do agree with you lupita nyong'o okay best actor best actor across these movies again some really really wonderful performances but since we didn't have a chance even to talk about him enough i gotta go with michael keaton in birdman i love michael keaton and some of that love began with this movie because i've gotten to see more of his work after seeing Birdman, as I've become more and more of a movie guy. And he is just unbelievably talented. And Riggan Thompson is such a fascinating character. He walks the line of being completely insufferable and self-absorbed, and yet earning our empathy and, and causing us to want more for him. And giving his character a balance of the ugliness that can come from stardom and all of it going to your head and going a little crazy and hearing the voice of your most famous character speaking to you in the back of your mind. While also showing the way that he actually cares for the people in his orbit. And ultimately walking us through the the wild ending to Birdman. I think it's a brilliant performance. And like I said, I'm ticked that he didn't win the Oscar that year because he totally should have. But my Best Actor award goes to Michael Keaton. My Best Actor Award also goes to Michael Keaton. Look at us! We're in lockstep. This is so exciting. Speak on it. I think that there's there's so much overacting that he does, but it's for a reason. He knows exactly when... He knows exactly with what veracity to say a line. And he knows the exact inspiration to fit the scene. He is just perfectly cast and beautifully on display here. Oh, I love you, Michael. Let's move on now to, you know, you know, I'll, I'll switch it. Let's do Best Director. These are three brilliantly directed movies. 12 Years a Slave, Parasite, and Birdman. I, I think they are all brilliantly directed for different reasons. And I just, I didn't, I was really struggling when I was thinking about this because I didn't know where to go. And so I have given an award to 12 years and Birdman already. And so winning by the hair on my chinny chin chin, I'm actually going to give this one to Bong Joon-ho for Parasite. I think Parasite at this point is kind of the apex of his career. It launched a, a new engagement in some ways with international and foreign cinema for regular American audiences. The first 
film predominantly not in the English language to win Best Picture at the Oscars. And the way that he manages different tones and incorporates different genres and makes you laugh, makes you cry, even scares you a couple times. And, and the fact that Parasite is as good as it is, is so, so in debt to his direction. And I think 12 Years a Slave, Steve McQueen, as I said in the review, our review for that, he is all over that movie. Um, and so it was so hard to to pick between the two of them, but I had to go with, with Bong Joon-ho. I should be no surprise to go with Inuritu, the beauty with which he manages to move that camera and show us very much the intimacy that is present within each character and how those two flow together to create an artistic form of asking the question, what is art? Use special effects. This is a beautiful superhero movie. It's a beautiful soundtrack score movie with the drummer. It's a beautiful deconstruction of what a film is. And I think he guides your hand to see, well, to make you see, look, this is what film can do. And this is the question I want to raise. And I'm not going to answer this question, but you know, isn't this cool? All right. Best screenplay, sir. I think I'm already, I'm going to, I want to break some protocols here. (laughs) I'm going to break some rules. Uh, I'm actually going to change my award for best director and I'm going to give it to Steve McQueen. And here's why. Because Parasite was written and directed by Bong Joon-ho and Birdman written and directed with Inyari 2 there on the writing team. Steve McQueen directing from a script that is not his. So I am going to switch it up and I'm going to give my directing award to Steve McQueen and my best screenplay award to Bong Joon-ho and his collaborator on Parasite, which... (laughs) I am a fool and should have looked up, of course, but then I found myself in this horrific breaking of protocol and bending of rules. <laughs> Please forgive me. His Han collaborator, Han Jin Won. Again, everything that I just said, the balancing of tones, the building of character, it's its brilliant, it's wonderful, and so I, I give it to them. And I, I pass directing to Steve McQueen. His imprint is all over that movie, despite the fact that he didn't work on the screenplay. It was John Ridley's work, although they argued about it behind the scenes. So all that to say, I've broken the rules. But those are my choices. Cool. So my winners, Inuritu, Jacobone, Dunalaris Jr., and Bo, because I, I don't... To be able to get this story that, uh, honestly, we haven't even really touched on the humor, that is this funny. To me, it is still funny. To me, it is still dark. To me, it is still intense. And how they not only balanced that, but superseded it. To me, this is not one of style over substance. To me, this is one where style is the substance. And that's incredible. Finally, best picture. My best picture. And I, going into this blend, would not have known where it was going to go because I was, I had movies, two movies rated nines and one rated a 10. And I emerged the same in that actually one might even might be bumped up to a 10. Who knows? But actually my best picture goes to 12 years a slave. And as I said, my, my joy with parasite increases every time I watch it. My feelings on Birdman changed slightly for the negative on this rewatch. I'm still a huge fan of it. But my, just, (laughs) I guess not my, but I was bowled over by 12 Years a Slave watching it again. I think it is an absolute masterpiece. One of the best movies to ever win the Best Picture Award. Not only for the incredible filmmaking and the artistry on display from Steve McQueen and the brilliant performances, but just as a historical document and functioning as a meaningful winner of the Best Picture Award. 
I think Parasite was also meaningful. And again, Birdman, meaningful in its own ways in that um, Yaratu is part of this this run of, uh, Christian, please feel free to correct me if I use the wrong word here, but Hispanic filmmakers bringing their movies to the Oscars and winning big and, and taking over the Hollywood stage, both in terms of Best Picture and Best Director awards. You've so all Quaron, Inuritu, Inuritu, Del Toro. Damien Chazelle, Del Toro. Damien Chazelle um, broke the and <laughs> little thing. <laughs> um, but in in a selection of historic Oscar winners, I think that Twelve Years a Slave increased the most in terms of my from my first watch to my second. I was completely wowed and moved and challenged, and I think of it very highly, and so it wins my Best Picture award. And Christian, I think we all know what you're about to say, but I'll let you say it anyway. Birdman. I think it remains everything I wanted it to be. I think it remains, I don't know, it's, here's the thing. One of the reasons why I love showing people this movie is because they kind of have no clue where the movie's taking them. And they have no clue where the movie's taking them and they get to the end and the ending is not neat. It is not nice, but it makes them think, what the F is Emma Stone looking up at? It does all of those things because it knows how to keep an audience engaged. It knows how to raise important questions. It knows how to make you think, how to make you reevaluate. It is Birdman. I continue to love this film. We didn't really dig into this too much, but three great endings as well. All of the endings of these movies have stuck in my mind. They're some of the most notable, most famous parts of these movies great endings and with that speaking of great endings christian our best picture winners of the 2010s blend of the month has come to an end like i said just an absolute banger of a month 12 years a slave parasite and now birdman all being discussed on the show thank you uh, for curating such a good month on on my offering of a theme and now I'm excited because for us film fans out there, it's April 12th as we record it, but hopefully April 18th or 19th or 20th as you're listening to it. And that means that the Oscars are coming. They are coming, Christian. They are so close. They will be coming April 25th. And so our show next week will be focused on our thoughts on the movies nominated for the major categories at the oscars and maybe a few others thrown in as well i am caught up on all the ones all films nominated for best animated and best documentary there you go that those are categories i am working on but of course i am still behind on best picture so Yo, the sean the sheet movie very good very enjoyable <laughs> i was not expecting that to be said on this episode and i look forward to hearing more of your thoughts on sean the sheep as we get to our oscars show next excuse week. excuse you it's a sean the sheep movie farmageddon pardon pardon and we will have some special guests joining us for that episode christian they're your special guests so so care to share let's just reveal tyler penn let's keep the other uh, we have a few, let's just say Tyler Penn. <laughs> we have a couple other potential special guests who may be joining us. So I guess we don't want to play our hand too much here. But yes, Christian's roommate Tyler, who you may have heard on the bonus episode about the Sundance Film Festival, will be joining us once again. It'll be good to actually be on an episode with my good friend Tyler, who is now, of course, Christian's roommate. And you guys are better friends, even though I've known Tyler longer, but whatever. 
he and maybe a couple more will be joining us on that show to discuss the movies nominated for the 2021 Oscars. And with that, we conclude this episode and this blend of the month. If you followed along, especially on this extra long Birdman episode, thank you so much for listening. It means a ton to Christian and myself. We love putting these shows together and this means a lot that there's people out there listening. So thank you for your support. Um, there are a few things that you can do to continue to support the show. Number one, you can leave us a rating or a review on Apple Podcasts. Helps us reach new listeners there. And of course, please do subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. We would love to see our subscriber counts grow and continue to reach new listeners across all platforms. You can also engage with us in a couple different ways. Number one, dropping us a line at cinemadrippodcast at gmail.com. We appreciate all who have emailed in the past, given some feedback, and offered some ideas for future blends of the month. And we're looking forward to actually making one of them a reality later on this year. Stay tuned. We also would appreciate your follows on Twitter at cinemadrippodcast or following Christian and myself on Letterboxd, where we are rating and reviewing the things that we're watching, even if we are often behind because we watch a lot of movies. Christian, any final thoughts for those listening at home? I was very civil today. You were, I would say, shockingly civil. I was afraid for myself. (laughs) I was very civil today. You were very civil. I told you I pick and choose my battles, and the battle I chose is going to be the first or second show in December. (laughs) Well, I will start girding my loins for that moment. I have a few months to prepare. As always... I am Scott Lentz, he is Christian Birdman Ubius, and this has been the Cinema Drip Podcast.